Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, I have a guest on the podcast going to talk about his um, new book, and I'll introduce that in a second, but um, just want to welcome Josh Sabe to the podcast. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Richard. Good to be here. Um, Josh is a documentary filmmaker and writer, and he's won various awards, including one of his recent films, American Tragedy, won Best Documentary at the Boston Film Festival, and among the top 20 most watched document documentaries on Amazon. Um, Josh and his wife live in Idaho, and they have two boys. And the book we're going to talk about is Ali the Iraqi. And um, is that okay for an introduction? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Before we talk about your novel, just you know, tell our listeners, you're a BYU literature graduate, just tell our listeners a little bit because some people may be interested in that career, younger listeners, and wondering how that worked for you. Do you want to tell a little bit of your personal story? I don't know if I talked to you at age 18, you said, this is what I'm going to do. I'd be a filmmaker if it came later. Um, and just any advice you have for people thinking about that as a career, filmmaker and writer. Yeah. So I went to BYU and graduated in English literature. Um, I, I went into the job force sort of uh, i followed my wife around she went and got her master's and phd and i i was writing some blogs i wrote on a variety of um i got published around different places uh, federalist uh, i tried to get published in like new york times and things like that cool um, made a few a few places that i got published um and then i got a few gigs that where i was just you know doing sort of blog content but it was not at all the sort of writing that I, I would like doing <laughs> for a long term. So I sort of pivoted. I uh, realized that, um, you know, a lot of people are watching what they used to read. And um, when I went into the film world, I was able to do more of what I wanted to do, the kind of stories I wanted to tell. And so I just started, I actually just started making my own documentary and I, I worked with my mom on it. It was one that she had actually come up with. She wanted to tell the story of sort of the holes in the mental health system in our country. And so we just bought a camera and made a movie. And that was sort of my master's degree. <laughs> I just learned everything, you know, how to edit, how to film and, you know, made all the mistakes, but we did all right with it. It won a couple of awards and got on canopy, um, got distributed on canopy. And then after that, I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and so we started, you know, we've now made quite a few documentaries. Um, you know, I've worked with different people. I've made a couple more with my mom. I've made some with my wife. Um, we've done some long, some short, you know, variety of different films and working on our first feature right now, which is going to be sort of the dissertation for my wife. Um, she's getting her PhD in literature, wow. um, but she got permission to do a non-traditional dissertation. And we're making a movie, which is uh, retelling, the, uh, you know, uh, the story of Job. But I, I should say one more thing that's interesting. We have a new film out right now that was just screened by MWEG or Mormon Women for Ethical Government in a variety of places. Um, it's been screened actually all over the world. It's called The Abortion Talks, um, which is, you know, kind of a scary title, uh, particularly in, uh, I don't know, different communities. Uh, but it is an amazing story that we learned about in Boston, about there were shootings at abortion clinics in Boston. And as a result, um, there was this, you know, John Salvi was arrested in this huge lawsuit that took place around, around that. But 
underneath all of that, there were these six leaders. So there's three pro-life and three pro-choice leaders that met together secretly. And they met together for six years secretly and ultimately became deep friends, even across, you know, this really vast divide. And so it's a really remarkable story that, um, that we just released last year. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was beginning to watch a movie on a plane that I think was Steven Spielberg's story that I just watched it through being a teenager. And I think, and maybe you can make sure I'm talking about the right movie. And I recognize if I'm thinking it was Steven Steven Spielberg, just the voices as he was a teenager pursuing his passion um, that were maybe pointing out all the, the reasons why this wasn't a good idea. And they may have been risk-averse voices. And as I've, as I've grown up as a parent, I'm not quite there as an advisor. I sometimes, my natural self, and maybe people did this to you and you pivoted. Uh, maybe you did this to yourself, like, I can't do this. Why am I, could I be a filmmaker? And maybe voices around you pointed at all the risks and you've got to provide for a family. But you did this anyway. And my older self wants to be more empowering to people if they have a dream to not point out all the the downside risks of that dream and to be a little more empowering to them. Any thoughts in your own story, advice for younger people that have a dream, but the voices around them are kind of like, well, I'm a realist. You're kind of following your dream. Yeah. That's a hard question. Cause there's a reality, reality to it. You know, there's a lot of people that want to be filmmakers or writers that never really catch a break. You know? Yeah, true. <laughs> and that's, that's the reality. Um, and there are people that get really lucky, get to know the right people. You know, so much is who you know and how you get connected. I, you know, I've been pretty lucky in just running into the right people, um, the right stories at the right time. You know, there's just a fair amount of luck in that. Uh, and I, I guess I, I never pursued it sort of like this or nothing else. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I just kind of pursued the doors that opened. It was like, well, here's an opportunity to make a documentary. And I wasn't scared to go through it in the sense of, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a very cautious person. Uh, and I was like, sure, mom, let's make a documentary and bought a camera and <laughs> I actually bought a computer. And, you know, there was an investment there uh, and then an investment of time. And we just made it. And I made all the mistakes, you know, like really <laughs> got all the wrong lenses. You know, I got, I got a good camera and a bad lens, which is the opposite of what you should do. <laughs> so if you're going to film, get a good lens and a bad camera, you'll get something better. But anyways, um, you know, and lighting, I got bad lights. And again, that's probably more important than your camera. So I did everything backwards, but I learned it all in the process. And I still ended up with something, you know, something that wasn't nothing. I ended up with a documentary that got me the next sort of the next step. Um, so I, I don't know. That's, I think it could have ended up differently, but I wasn't totally set on like this or, or bust. Never, it's never really how I pursued. Cause I kept writing. I kept doing other things. I just kind of, I, my whole life, I think I've just kind of gone through doors that opened to me and that interested me. And, uh, you know, I ended up here. Uh, I think there's other people that really have a passion and want to do something and doors tend to open for them. So that's, that wasn't my story. I wasn't like, I'm going to do this or nothing. And, you know, I think if I was that way, probably doors would have opened, but maybe not. You know, there's a lot of people that just don't catch a break. And that's, that's a reality. It's a great answer, Josh. I love, it's kind of a simple answer in a way. You didn't make a real complicated formula here. Um, You opened doors, you went through doors that opened for you that were consistent with your, 
your feelings about your future. And I love that you're probably your second and third documentary were much better than your first one because yeah. you just can't get to the finish line in these new spaces the first time you do something. So I'm sure that some of these later documentaries you're doing will continue to do um, are much better because you're now walked through this door and understand this industry and all the different nuances of it. And, and it may open a different door that wasn't open to you if you hadn't done the documentary thing. So, you know, sure. so well, I'll just ahead. say that one thing that I don't know if it's helpful or not, but in a lot of ways, um, you know, that there are risks that we take that we don't see as risks because people tell us they're not risks, but like going to university and a lot of times is a very expensive risk. You're putting a lot of money into it, particularly with like an English degree. Um, and that's actually a lot more expensive in most cases than making a documentary. <laughs> so we have risks that people think, oh, that's a good risk, even though, you know, the stats aren't necessarily there that you're going to have a job afterwards. And then we have risks that, you know, people think are bad risks, but I don't know. In some ways, there's also just evaluating the risk yourself. Like, what does this actually cost you? In some ways, my education for making a documentary was way cheaper than most people's education that they pay to go to film school. You know, um, and I ended up with something. I ended up with a product that we sold, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I don't know. I think it was actually a smaller risk than most people take going to school. That's great. I love stories like this. Some of, my list, uh, some of the listeners, I assume, are younger and kind of figuring out what their profession is. And there's kind of a story within your story here. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, talk about this book. It's called Ali the Iraqi. Listeners will link to it in the show notes. And I've read a little bit about it. But I'll just let Josh introduce the book and what he wants to share. Yeah, so it was published by BCC Press, and um, it's called Ali the Iraqi, and it's the story. So at the very beginning, we have an introduction that really lays out that this is fiction, <laughs> maybe said with like a half wink in the sense that there's a lot of reality in it. And part of the reason it's fiction is to protect people, right? To protect Ali and his family, his family's, a lot of his family's still in Iraq, Um but there's also, it's mosaic in a lot of ways, the story, um, in the sense that we, it's not just our stories. It's also stories we gathered from other people and kind of sort of wove them all together into, into one narrative. And then some of it is just made up <laughs> for a variety of reasons. So that's sort of the introduction is that this is a completely fictional story, even though it's obviously not completely fictional. So the true story is that is, a, is an amazing story. Uh, and it is the story of a 16-year-old boy who came from Iraq to Colorado, to South Denver area, Littleton or Centennial, Colorado for a leadership program. This was in around 2007. So really the war in Iraq was sort of over at this point, um, but really it was just, just the, the rebuilding was really just beginning. And um, so they, there were these programs that were bringing Iraqi youth over to America and sort of teach them about democracy and I think trying to build friendships and it was, it was called, you know, like the future leaders of Iraq program is what it was sort of trying to be. And so my parents got involved with this, I think through the church, actually, I think someone in the ward was involved and asked if we want to be involved. And so they, they agreed. And actually we had two youth live with us for three weeks. Um, and it was two or three weeks. And <clears throat> I only talk about one of them in the book. Um, they're actually in some ways very opposite people, but I'll just talk about Ali, who's in the book. And he he has the most, I guess, remarkable story in the sense that uh, 
it's crazy. <laughs> so he comes over and stays with us. And then at the end of the program, he runs away. Uh, so he goes AWOL. And they had all signed a paper saying they were going to return you know, to their country. And he runs away and he's gone. We don't know where he is for about a year. Um, there's a fair amount that happened that I know now about uh, and where he went and where he was. But we hear from him, I think about a year later, where he called my parents and said, hey, could I come live with you? And he came back and lived with us through high school. And he went to college. And he still lives in Denver area. Um, so we helped him get political asylum, us and several other people. And he was able to live here by himself, you know, a 16-year-old boy with really no close family in the country. Uh, and he was able to navigate his way and he has a job and he's actually getting married soon. Um, and he lives still in Colorado. Um, he still has, you know, close relationship with his family. Um, but yeah, but your amazing story. And I guess where it started for me, I guess I can introduce a little bit where the heart of the story is. So that is the amazing story. That's the story of Ali. The story of, of me <laughs> in this is, so when a lot of these Iraqis came over on this program and in the book, I refer to sort of my character as Paul, even though my name is Josh. Um, <laughs> but my, the character sort of represents me as Paul. And um, anyways, as a lot of these Iraqis came over, they, you know, a lot of the, the girls stopped wearing the hijab right away. You know, a lot of the boys never did prayers or anything. And this was, you know, we had prepared for this. Like we had, we'd gone to trainings on like having water in the bathroom and or wipes in the bathroom so they could do voodoo and having uh <laughs> just different things like to really allow for their religion you know within the context of our our culture so we had been prepared for this and then they had come over and we saw so little of their religion it was a little shocking and i, I just found myself really wanting him and the others to be true to their faith and you know, he would come to church with us and the first, I think it was the first Sunday he was here with us. It was fast and testimony meeting. And he walked up to the front and spoke for like 10 minutes no <laughs> just way. about his life. And that was also like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you know, nothing about our religion and you're not practicing your religion. And this is my, as a kid, you know, this is my, my response was sort of, I think I was a little threatened by him and a little scared and really feeling that he should be true to his, his family and his faith. And that was also com complex because also I believe in my family and my faith. And my brother was on a mission at this time and he was out there telling people to convert. And here was someone in our house that I was feeling like, no, you shouldn't be coming to church with us and bearing testimony at our testimony meetings. <laughs> you know, you should be going to mosque and you should be saying the prayers. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if I was right or wrong about any of that, but that was, I think the emotional anchor for the beginning of the book, where it was just that struggle of trying to understand how should we feel about these people, particularly this is a boy who's away from his family, you know, and I don't know. And there's something also poetic about that um, and our time in life, you know, so someone who's come to this new world away from his family. And there's people here, you know, welcoming him and taking care of him. And what's our responsibility to that person? Um, certainly something metaphorical in that. Um, yeah. Keep sharing. You could either just keep sharing or you could, it's, yeah. a, it seems, or you could answer this question. Why, you know, I think most Latter-day Saint, you're in your teens at this point. 
17, yeah, I was 18? about the same age as Ali. I was maybe so I think, a half a year or a year older. I don't know this, but I think most Latter-day Saint teens that are active in their faith would, because of kind of our missionary emphasis, would say, this is an opportunity to convert Ali to Latter-day Saint. And and this is sort of the first step he bore testimony. But your sort of natural instinct was, I want him to stay true to his faith. Um, and maybe it's because you felt like he was in a new environment. Any, any idea of why you felt that way? No one told you to felt that way, but it's just kind of how you're wired, Josh. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. Uh, and I'll just say it wasn't just me. I know my mom had similar feelings um, about the girls who had stopped wearing the hijab. I think part of it is like, we know that they have family <laughs> back in Iraq and we don't know what all of their family situation is. Like we had one boy who stayed with us who was really not religious at all. But Ali's family was very religious. I mean, a lot of these girls had families that were very religious. And I think part of it was feeling that like we're hosting this child who has a family that has a faith and we're not going to try to, you know, get in the way of that. We're going to try to preserve that. Like you would sort of want your, if you sent your child off to somewhere to be, you know, and they stopped any of the sort of the stricture of pulling any of the strictures of the faith, you'd probably be grateful if someone felt like, well, Hey, you know, you're here for a time and you don't have the structures you used to have, but let's not just forget everything. Let's, you know, be a little more careful about what we throw aside. And, you know, I think that was part of it was a feeling of responsibility to these families. I think part of it was um, less admirable, was more like, hey, this is my faith and my family and my country. And, you know, like, uh, like, like just, I don't know, the sort of, I think there was a bit of that. Um, and then I think, um, there's also just a deep respect for this old faith, this really old and beautiful faith. I remember having this thought once, like what would happen if we converted the whole Muslim world, right? And <laughs> this is in the book, it talks about this, you know, who would really be converted there, right? Like ultimately we would be assimilated into the faith, right? Like <laughs> Because their culture is so big and so strong and we're so small in comparison that even it, it's sort of like what happened to Christianity with Rome, you know, like Rome became Christian, but in a lot of ways, Christianity, be, Christianity became Rome. Right. And that's what would happen. Right. If you converted the whole Muslim world, you know, in a lot of ways we would become Muslim instead of, you know, their culture wouldn't just disappear and be subsumed by ours, uh, which is, you know, in some ways much newer and younger and um, yeah, less, less deep. Um, I think we have a deep, wonderful culture, but I, I just remember having that thought and um, I don't know where that, that took me, but I think the part of this book was just a struggle to really deal with that, to really think through how should we feel about these other faiths. Um, and they also have the same sort of thoughts about us, actually. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of writing and discussion within Islam about other prophets about prophets of other religions um, and that they might not be completely, and within our religion, we have the same thoughts, <laughs> that they might not be completely unprophetic, right? That they might have some divinity. They have some of that within their, within their religion. And we have some of that within ours, where we sort of allow for this idea that there could be other prophets out there that aren't exactly, you know, the restoration prophets, but they're not, not prophets. <laughs> and that, and so that sort of goes both ways with both religions. That's an interesting 
in a lot of ways, the religions mirror each other. I mean, it's been a long time that people have been drawing connections between Muslims and Mormons. Obviously, there's dramatic differences. One of one of the main ones is the hierarchy. You know, we have a very strong hierarchy and unity of faith in, in a way where we have these structures and, uh, you know, we still have a modern prophet, whereas Islam doesn't have that in a lot of ways. They don't have a pope. They don't have a prophet. You know, um, they don't have those hierarchies. Um, so they're in, in some ways a much more diverse faith. Yeah. Keep sharing what's in the book or just, you know, what the core of the book is and what your hopes are that readers will get from the book or changes that perhaps Latter-day Saints might consider in their own lives after reading the book, anywhere you want to go. Yeah. Well, I, I it actually might be worth if I read a few sections. Would that awesome. be interesting to you? That's to great. Please. Okay. Just one second. Maybe I can just read from the introduction just to give a sense for what this book is. You should know that Ali is a real person. He's the co-author of this book and an invaluable asset in writing something this heavy with history. But we are using a fake last name to protect him and his family. He came to America from Basra as a member of the U.S. initiative to help educate the future leaders of Iraq. Ali lived with my family while he, while he was here, but ran away the night before he was supposed to return to Iraq. He disappeared for a time, but came back to us a year later and stayed until he obtained political asylum and graduated from high school. We call each other brother, and he calls my parents mother and father. There's always been an understanding that he has another family, another home. While Lee is a real person, the story we have written cannot be classified as anything but fiction. Nothing about it is completely true. It is built out of the stories he will tell of me late at night from stories we gathered from other members of the Iraqi leadership program and from my own imagination. If anything, it is a compilation of many stories. Today, as I write this, it has become very hard for me to separate truth from the story we have written. In many cases, I no longer know what has been invented and what is simply relayed. And for this reason, more than any other, I must say again that this is fiction. I emphasize this for my sake, for the reader's sake, and for Ali's sake. You should, you should also know that I have remained very close to Ali, and we speak together often about his childhood. He enjoys the conversation and says it brings him a certain consolation to recall those times and is grateful for the occasion to remember. He lives in Denver now and usually joins my family for the holidays. When Ali read this book, soon after its initial completion, it was on a summer evening, and the air had become very pleasant. I met him at, at his friend's place. He was very polite and told me it was, it was wonderful I had completed a novel. We made it partway through the novel that night and planned to pick up where we had left off the next morning. It was late by the time he showed me the large brown couch where I would sleep. I woke, er, I woke up early and bought some croissant sandwiches at the bakery down the street, one for me, Ali, and his friend. After we finished eating, I read aloud, and Ali suggested a few revisions, and I was obliged to change anything he might want. I felt the need to preserve whatever remnants of truth existed. Later, he asked me why I had changed so much of the story. I only shrugged and said that the difference between nonfiction and fiction is not so much in the result as in the attempt. The first tries to draw out of life the aesthetics and dignity of a story, and the latter bestows those blessings upon it. In the end... Ali seemed to understand why I had done what I had done, or he was too polite to say otherwise. So we began, to, we began the long process of editing the book together. To this day, Ali remains amused by some of the characters I've created and some of the events undergone by a protagonist bearing his name and circumstance. But he is generous enough to tell me he loves the story. At some point, we talk about changing the protagonist's name from Ali to Amir or Omar. But we both agree that there is something special in the name Ali, perhaps... It was the three letters, the double syllable, the way the sounds, the way it sounds like a human breath, the rising A and the falling Lee. 
a tide like the coming and going of bodies across the earth. Much of the story I have only guessed at, as it was only told to me by proximity. And like life, there are too many stories and too many other stories to ever straighten them all out. To tell, to tell one is to break another. If this is an art form, it is mosaic in nature. And this method of storytelling I take from another book, a book of special importance to this present work, A Thousand Nights in a Night, often shortened to the nights, or Arabian Nights. I remember when I first held the book and ran my fingers across the gold lettering. It was meant to look old like the stories inside. I did not know how, then how much it would guide this work, each story buried in the others, like trinkets in an old sandbox that new children now play in, run their pudgy fingers through, and like dreams they make of each discovery plot. We will only paint for you our stories as we see them now, how we have come to know them and live them and remember them. Sometimes the stories we care about the most, our own and of those we love, we are, never, are never told to us. And so we tell them like Shahrazad in Broken Pieces. The first volume of the Knights is full of characters like the Colanders or the Three Ladies or the Slaver Ion, who are saved by relating a story. But to Shahrazad, it is the breaking of a story that saves her. In the same way, this is Ali's story, and in the breaking of it, my own. I pray that I have not sinned in writing this, or if I have, it is in the very image of God. A man, they say, will break open all our private stories, all our causes and reflections, and rewrite even our journals so that when we speak together, we speak with one voice, relating without repetition the old epic. That is great. You're yeah, a terrific, so terrific I think that writer. Sets up pretty well what this book is. But yeah. You're a terrific writer. I hope you did your own audiobook because you can. I've got a great voice for and a great ability to read your own work. So, oh, thanks. I didn't, but we do have an audiobook. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'll just say that um, I think that gets to a lot of what this book is. It's really an attempt to understand Ali, to understand myself, and to understand how we all fit together, you know, in, in this big, tent picture, you know, where we're all children of God. And there are these really rich traditions that are very different than ours. And how should we think about them, feel about them, act towards them and their children? You want to talk more about that? Just how to, you know, we have this missionary focus as our church. You served a mission, yeah. um, but you're fine. You know, just there's people in other faiths and how you're how you navigate seeing people in other faiths. Do you want to bring them all into our faith? Do you honor their own journey? How do you navigate all that? Yeah, I think it's a complex question because in some ways, you know, the answer is obviously yes, right? Like, <laughs> obviously we want this big faith that everyone's a part of and that we all believe in. You know, there's one of the greatest authors ever to live, Dostoevsky, you know, um, talks a little bit about this, that, you know, mankind has... It's in his book, Brothers Karamazov. They have basic desires like food and they need those things. Um, and then they have the next level of desires, a sort of belief. They need to believe in something. And there's sort of this sort of this third level of desire, which is you know, unity of belief, to believe all in the same thing. You know? <laughs> and I think that's true. These are like fundamental human desires to not just believe something, but to believe it together. And so I think in some ways that's that's a real hope, not just of our faith, but of all faiths and all people to have a shared belief. Um, and then at the same time, there's this real tragedy of if that were actualized here on this earth, right? If like right if tomorrow, suddenly everyone were just converted because 
Elder Smith was an amazing missionary. I went and converted the whole world. You know, suddenly there'd be this loss of all of this rich traditions and all of these other faiths. Um, and maybe it wouldn't be a wholesale loss. Maybe we'd be able to incorporate them in different ways. But, um, you know, there's just this also reality, of, I guess, the impossibility of that. <laughs> just from, like I had talked about before, how in some ways, you know, everything has a gravity, right? And our gravity is so small, <laughs> we can't just pull them over. And if we did, you know, we'd be the ones moving, you know, <laughs> relatively speaking. So I just thought sort of the impossibility of even converting the whole world, like that would, what would that even mean and be like, and what would that mean about our faith and how much would that change our faith? And so I just thought there's this real impossibility of it as well as a hope for it. Um, that I think m- makes it really intriguing space for writing, right? <laughs> and for writing a novel where you have this really deep question and desire um, that sort of sit in conflict and generate, I think, beauty, a literary beauty, as well as, you know, just dynamic characters and everything. So it's, I think it was a really good split space for starting a novel that isn't exploring these issues from a really cerebral place, but from a lived experience, trying to put characters in situations where they're encountering these questions and living them. I love the principles you're sharing. And, you know, my own story's been a journey in this space. I remember back to when I was in a church assignment in YSA Ward, we had several join the church and I felt pretty confident that that was the right path. But there was one man and young man in particular that I mean, he's meeting with missionaries. He was attending church. He was doing everything we asked him to do, but um, it, including prayer. And he came back to us and said, I feel impressed to stay Catholic. And I sat with that for a while and then I felt impressed to honor his personal revelation, even though I felt and hoped that he'd become Latter-day Saint, because it's certainly um, blessed my life, and I want that for others. But I recognize that I may not know God's will um, for every one of his children, and he seems pretty comfortable with uh, most of his children being outside our faith. So I felt impressed to honor his agency and just say, I'll be your friend. I accept your decision. I'm not going to give you a new homework list to get you to find the answer I thought you'd find. And that's just the way I navigated it. So the church is true for me, but I recognize it may not be everybody's path. You intuit, you recognize it may be, it wasn't Ali's path. It's certainly at that time when he was in a highly transitional stage. Um, and you just honor that. And I think of, and I think we as Latter-day Saints may be at more peace with people being in other faiths because we have this, um, big picture, 40,000 foot level view of the plan of salvation and yeah. and the pre-earth life and why we're here and the post-earth life. And so maybe we should be at more peace with um, and seeing good in other religions. I love S. Michael Wilcox, who coined the term, or at least has used it, maybe didn't coin it, holy envy, where yeah. I as a Latter-day Saint see beauty in other religions and that is not threatening to me. And he also talked... Um, about a fixed foot compass. This is S. Michael Wilcox, whereas a Latter-day Saint, I can have a compass that has two legs, listeners, where one's fixed, and then one reaches way out. It's probably a 
a drawing compass, a graphic compass, but some of us intuitively want to keep our fixed foot fixed and the next foot right next to us. But some like you, Josh, seem to be really comfortable leaning that other foot out and seeing all the good in the world that comes potentially from other religions and how other religions are blessing individual lives and what we can learn from other religions, even in our own faith tradition, and not find that threatening. And yeah, so, and I'll, I, just, so sorry. I'll send it back to you just with yeah. those kind of thoughts. Well, yeah, I think, so again, I think it wasn't, I think I was surprised by the feelings, right? And I, I you know, I was pretty... I'm still am very convert converted member of the church. You know, I, I wasn't like struggling with testimony or wondering which church is true or something like that. Like that wasn't the process uh, I was going through. I wasn't, you know, struggling with some issue within the church. I was, I think I was surprised to feel this real desire that this person be true to his faith. <laughs> um, and I think part of it is, I think I'm a pretty loyal person and it feels like, um, you know, you should be loyal to family and faith you know, when you're in a different country. And I think part of it is also just the, the way in which I've always throughout my whole life had to make fit space for my faith in this country, right? Find, finding a way for that to exist in a culture. You know, I'm, I didn't grow up in Utah or, or, or I live now in Idaho where most people I run into share my faith. You know, I grew up in a place in Colorado where not many people shared my faith. Um, like no one on my sports teams and not many people in my high school. Um, and so I was always having to make space for my faith. And I don't think that was their experience in Iraq, right? In Iraq, the structures were all there and the faith just was organic to life in that. And when they weren't there, they just didn't know, I think, in a lot of ways how to do what I had done my whole life, <laughs> which is like carve out space for my faith in this culture. And so I think also part of me was sort of like, look, I've been here. I know how to have faith exist in this culture. And so I think there's part of that too, where it's like, no, it can exist. <laughs> I know it's, it's going to take some like intentionality that it didn't used to, um, but it can and should. And I think that was part of how, how I felt at the time. Um, a few other moments in the book that are interesting. I, I ex explored in some ways with how our faiths interact. You know, there are ways in which, we have borrowed heavily from other faiths before us, from our hymn book, you know, to the Christus that we have now as the symbol of our church, right? In, in a lot of ways, you know, is taken from other faiths. Um, and a lot of that we don't even know about and or aren't even aware of oftentimes. Um, so, like, in some ways, interfaith is just the reality of existence in our faith that we've, we have these other faiths from their like atonement theory to all sorts of different things that we've really borrowed from heavily. And so we're already interfaith, right? Like that's just a, the way we exist in the world and in faith groups. Um, and in some ways we help each other and protect and save each other even without knowing. And so one of those ways I explored that is uh, the, the character Paul gives the character Ali a book of Mormon when he's leaving and um, Ali runs away, as we know, and uh, he ends up in Boulder in, some, in the mountains, and it's cold at night, and it's raining, and he uses the Book of Mormon to light a fire, <laughs> right? 
And in a way, the Book of Mormon saves him, right? <laughs> like, um, right? The physical aspect of the faith, you know, ends up being a, a salvific effect. It has a salvific effect on him. And I wanted that. That was one of the, uh, I think, more poetic moments that I was trying to explore some aspects of this. Then here's a funny story that's outside of the novel. I, you know, was editing this with Ali and he sent it to his family back in Iraq to, you know, have it, see if they had any concerns about anything. And that was the one thing that they were not okay with. Burning the Book of Mormon. They said, you do not burn holy books. It'd be better for Ali to die than to burn the Book of Mormon. And it was funny because I was, I was the member of the church who had ran the burning of the Book of Mormon. And yet it was these Muslims back in Iraq that were not okay with a Book of Mormon being burned. And so we ended up editing it to, um, he burns the index pages because there's nothing holy or scriptural about index. <laughs> so, it's kind of um, role reversal where you're honoring Ollie and wanting him to stay in his faith. And I love that you sent Ollie. Ollie was involved in the book after at some point, and even it went to Ollie's parents. And they want to respect your faith by not having that whole no. Book of Mormon and I love the, we're all the same human family. So I love these stories of where we respect each other's faith. And to me, that is our faith is to respect other people's faith. Yeah, for sure. And later in the book, there's another character, Kurt, who's, uh, you know, atheist. Um, and he, it's another interesting moment where I'm exploring how in a lot of ways, it's this atheist in the, in the story who's able to help Ali the most. He's the one who's able to do most of the work to get him political asylum and to really provide the, like there's sort of spiritual salvation, which is something obviously important from a certain perspective, but then there's Ali's physical situation, which was very real and present. He was in a illegally in a country without money or food. And he needed to figure out how he was going to live here, how he's going to get political asylum how he was going to exist here. And those were real needs that an atheist provides in this book and is a little true to reality. Um, and so in another way, that was another way in which sort of the, one of the saviors here is this person that doesn't even believe in God, but, but fulfills these really crucial needs for Ali. Um, maybe I can read a section from one of Kurt's stories. So please Kurt is someone. So within throughout, I talked about in the introduction, the Shaharazad nature of this, where several times you have someone in this story who tells another story. Um, so this is Kurt's story that he wrote. Um, and he's telling to Ali when Ali's asking him about sort of what he thinks about God. And he tells this story, which is sort of a, well, you'll, you'll know what it is. <laughs> so anyways, I'll start a sentence before. Okay. Kurt will tell Ali more about what he had written, but Ali only remembers the final story about a plumber who had been robbed and beaten and left to die on the side of a highway. Three different men pass by. The first prays to God, asking what he should do. God answers and tells him that if he had left the plumber, that if he left the plumber alone, all things would continue according to God's plan. The plumber will die soon and be welcomed into heaven where he, where his skills are desperately needed. The first man accepts this direction and continues on his way. The second man passes by and asks God the same question. God answers the, sec the same way, but the second man is less faithful and, and importunes further. 
He asked if it is indeed God's will to take the plumber from earth and perhaps then that perhaps God might be able to end the plumber's suffering right away. God assures the man that whatever pains or sorrows the plumber experiences will be made right in the afterlife. Convinced, the second man continues on his way. The third man stops, prays and receives all the same answers as the second man. But when he looks on the suffering of the plumber, he is overtaken by grief and rushes to the plumber rushes to the plumber, lifts him into his car and hurries him to the hospital. The third man is, is leaving the hospital. As the third man is leaving the hospital, his mind is racked with what he had done. He regrets his disobedience, but more than that, his mind is dizzied with confusion. He could make no sense of it all. If God intended the plumber to die, had the highwayman performed his will? And if that was the case, could they rightly be blamed for their actions? It, it seemed bizarre to consider that God that God's will could be thwarted or fulfilled by righteousness as easily as wickedness so that what he imagined to be right or wrong could shift one way or another, like waves subject to the current needs of heaven. The man is so distracted as he turns back onto the highway that he loses control of his car, hits a tree and dies. His last thought of regret is regret and fear that he might go to hell for what he has done. There is no time to repent now. But when the man arrives at the pearly gates, he is permitted in and finds a heaven full of green gardens crystal palaces, large banquets, and backed up plumbing. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> but that just, so there's sort of a, in some ways, this real almost mythic feeling to the book where you have these real concrete, real lived experiences of real people. And then you have these more whimsical stories that people tell um, throughout. Yeah. That's really you're a really good writer. You've got a wonderful creative mind. I love this book exists. And I love that you share a story like that to help us just think about the parable of the Good Samaritan um, and just what we would do and what the principles are there. And that's we, my wife and I have just gotten back from Israel and we really we hiked through a hill and looked over that very barren road to Jericho. There's just nothing. There's no vegetation. It's just brutal. And I, you know, listening to that parable, I hope I would do the right thing. But in the day, in the moment, you know, I don't know what I would do because um, there's somebody that I wouldn't naturally want to help. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe not. It complicates my life, but it's fascinating to think about that parable. And I love what you just shared in the context of that <laughs> parable. That was great, Josh. Yeah, well, I think we all, I mean, there's these stories that Jesus tells that in some ways I think are supposed to feel just impossible, right? Like, like we all come across people that obviously need so much help and just the, the amount of help is overwhelming. Right? It's just like, I mean, I was just in uh, San Francisco the other day uh, for our film, actually it was being screened uh, at Glide Memorial church in San Francisco big old important church in San Francisco. And, you know, they've had a lot of problems with drug use there and it's actually a, like a safe needle injection site that churches, I don't really know how that all works. Um, but that's something they do there and walking around there, there were just so many completely broken people and just the amount of of need was so great and our ability to respond so small. And, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't like, 
oh, I'm inconvenienced. <laughs> it was like, how would I even <laughs> like do anything? Like literally everything just feels minuscule and pointless and hopeless. And I think that's something we feel often in life where whether it's that sort of scenario or your own child, right? I've seen this a lot where there's a child that you've loved, you know, maybe you brought into this world <laughs> and you want good for them. And yet what are you even able to do, right? Like, um, how do you even help them at this point? How do you even provide or, you know, I think that's, that is a dilemma we face all of the time in life is the obvious need to help and our responsibility to help. And yet at the same time, our complete Im the impossibility and our inability to help. And to me, that's what I've, I guess, called the Christian paradox is both our responsibility to help the, the, the call to help now we are responsible for the least of these and the reality that we can't help and that we require Christ, you know, to, to do so much that we cannot. Um, I think when that, when that paradox is operating productively, it drives us to act, right. Um, as instead of, you know, stemming our way, but it can do both. But I think when it's, when it's, when that paradox is operating correctly, it pushes us forward knowing that Christ is behind us or with us or in front of us, um, or maybe all around us and is providing the help now through us and beyond us. It's a great sermon. I think about that church that exists in the middle of that area. Um, seems to be without just a huge need and seems to be responding to everybody with um, as best it can. I think yeah. sometimes listeners, uh, Patrick Mason wrote a book. I can't remember the title of it, but he talked about, um, he talked about in the middle of a town, there's a central garden and everybody brings their expertise to the central garden and how he compared that to different faiths. Latter-day Saints bring, we could just work our own garden on the corner of town, but we accomplish more good when we come into the central garden and bring all of our expertise in the center. We still perhaps have our own gardens. That's okay. But we bless the most lives when we work together in that central garden with all the expertise from our different faiths in an interfaith way to lift the burdens of others. And I love that visual imagery of, I love gardens because they produce things that help people. And I love just that, you know, it's back to holy envy. And I, then I think of all the need that you just described in San Francisco. Um, so that's, and, but then I also think we just can do individually what we can do in our own circle of influence. Um, I don't think any of these stories should make us feel guilt that we're not doing enough. I think we just have to do what we can do and not compare ourselves to others that are doing quote unquote more or less. Um, sometimes we're going to be the good Samaritan and really rise to the occasion, but other times we might be the person that just walks by or says that prayer you said and gets an answer, that kind of an answer. And maybe that's okay. I don't know. We just do the best we can. Um, yeah. So that, that reminds me of a great Muslim. I don't know what it is exactly. It's, it's, it's a sort of like a myth. Um, and the stories of a man who, 
has been wicked his whole life, right? He's killed like a hundred people and done all these terrible things, like sort of hyperbole, right? Really bad person who's done lots of bad things. And he's feeling bad at the end of his life and he's trying to repent. And people keep telling him that, you know, he's too evil, he can't repent. And then one person tells him that there's this temple off in this distant lands land that if he goes to, he can receive forgiveness. And so this, this man starts his journey to this temple and he only gets a couple steps out of town and he dies. And so the angels come down, the angels and the devils come and they're arguing over who gets the body. And, you know, the devils are saying, I mean, he was evil his whole life. And the angel saying, yeah, but he was headed towards the temple. So, you know, and so God sends a messenger who says, you know, um, just measure the distance. If he's closer to the town where he lived a horrible life or closer to the temple, you know, he's closer to the town. The devils can take him. If he's closer to the temple, the angels get him. And, um, so as they start to measure, God stretches the world and wow. makes it, you know, miles and miles closer to the temple. And, um, I guess I feel like that in a lot of ways is the logic of, wow. of Jesus, right. Who undoes, uh, the logic of, um, of mathematics, right. And, and makes it this, like, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but this power of grace that transforms the world and stretches our distance. And when we take one step to the, towards the temple, we are at, we are at the door. Right. And the other thing I love about this story is that in this story, the angels are there arguing for the people, arguing to take the people into heaven. And I think sometimes in, in our stories, we have more of an idea of angels guarding the gate and uh, asking for passwords and such, you know, <laughs> like, can you be let in? And um, I don't actually think that's, th there's something beautiful about that, but also I, I, I love the idea. And I think it's true that God is trying to bring people into heaven, that the angels are out there looking for reasons to bring us in and looking for the good. Right. And that's how they catch us. Right. I wrote an essay on this. It was published in Wayfair, I think just last week. Cool. Um, that they are, you know, they catch us by the good things we do. You know, there's all these needs they place in our path and we miss a lot of them. Right. We, we don't help a lot of the times when we should, but sometimes we hear a baby crying. Right. And, and we, we stop and help. And those are the times that God, that's how he lassos us, right. Is with those good deeds. Uh, which comes one more story and <laughs> of, that, that tells us really the same, the same sort of God that I'm talking about in, in Russian literature. Again, this is Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov. And he tells the story of an onion about how there was this woman who had lived, lived this terrible life and um, she gets to heaven. And like the, the only good thing she ever did was she like gave this poor person an onion <laughs> she like shared an onion with someone and that was like her one good deed. And so she's up in heaven and there, the angels are again, arguing for her saying like, well, she did this good deed. So you know, maybe she can come to heaven. And so then God says, well, what you can do is you can hold down an onion. Cause she's, she's now down in like purgatory or hell. I'm not exactly sure where she is in, in this cosmology, but so they like hold down an onion. And if you can lift her up with the onion, then she can come to heaven. And so they reach down with the onion and 
trying to pull her up and other people around her are grabbing onto her to try to come up to heaven. And she says, no, it's my own thing. And then kicks them off and then it breaks and they fall. So it has more of a Russian sad ending. <laughs> but the, but the, the idea is the same, which is that God reaching out with our goodness, right? Finding those good deeds and saying, yes, yes, that was an onion, right? That was an onion. And I'm going to bring you to heaven with that. I think that's how God often reaches out to us is with the good we do. And then tries to use that to pull us even closer to heaven. It's really cool. I wrote down a phrase you said, a sentence, power that power of grace that stretches the world. What a beautiful yeah. visual imagery and that story that communicates that. Um, you have a gift, Josh. You have this, you know, real wonderful principle-based approach, but you have the gift of putting um, words to that in this book and also with your filmmaking. So um, listeners will link to Josh's book. We'll also link to the Wayfair article he just mentioned, essay, um, in the show notes. You can check out that. Um, anything else you'd just like to share in closing, Josh? Oh, it's been great. I, I do hope that people will check out the book. I do think it's a, it's been a, how many years now? I don't know, maybe like 12 years in writing this book. I started wow. as an undergrad at BYU, and I've just been chipping away at it at different times. And I, I think there's something valuable in it. I think it's um, something that um, is unique in the sense that it's, it's open and exploratory and creative and beautiful. I think it's well-written, um, but it's also faithful and faithful to my faith as well as to Ali's faith. And you know, I'm not sure that's that common in the literary world, but True. you know, I think that is what exists in this book. And in a lot of ways, I've poured a lot of my heart into it. So I hope people, you know, if they're looking for a, a good read, I, I do think it's a good read. And I hope they would please give it a try. And it will be available on Audible. I know a lot of people don't read books anymore. I have a hard time reading books. I mostly listen. So it, it will be available on Audible for people to listen to, which is, I think, good because it's hard for me to read books. It's hard to find time to sit and read. I should do more of that. But. It's hard to find time. Um, thank you, Josh Sabi. It's really been, I, I love meeting people, listeners for the first time and kind of hearing their stories and connect. I don't know much about, I haven't talked to many people that are documentary filmmakers. We've done more writers, but I love you just, you know, following your creative um, talents. And that road for those of you that are creative sometimes has less it's more wide open than some of the other paths that professionally people choose. So I love that you're making this work and walking through doors. And some of you that are listening are immensely talented creatively, but not quite sure how to make that work. And don't write your story just like Josh. I like these sort of stories. You got to write your own story, but take the principles that Josh shared at the first part of this podcast and write your own story professionally. And then I love books like this, um, Ollie the Iraqi. And I, when I read a book like this, listeners, I often, the stories cause me to reflect on real life experiences in my circle and what are the principles and what thoughts and ideas come into my mind that I can use to improve relationships and reduce divisiveness and find more peace in the world. This is a book that is like that. And I'm drawn to content that sort of gets my creative juices that are probably more limited than some because I'm very analytical and my skills are more in the business analytical space, but it helps me to 
sort of get that side of my brain going and what can I do. So thank you for your work, Josh. Really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Richard. Really appreciate your time and for all the listeners for listening. So Josh Sabi and Richard Oster signing off. Check out the show notes for a link to the book and also this Wayfair essay signing off another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.